This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Did you know that Nintendo canceled the Zelda game between Link's Awakening and Ocarina of Time so they could make Star Fox 64 instead? We've covered quite a few lost Zelda games over the years, but today we're going to take extra deep dives into three of them. Zelda Super FX, Zelda Treasure Tracker, and Ura Zelda. We worked with some data miners, translated old magazine interviews from around the world, and even talked to a couple guys who worked on those games, all to dig up some new info that you definitely haven't heard before. So let's get into it. Starting with the follow-up to Zelda 2, The Adventure of Link, that was planned as the series' first footsteps into the third dimension. The game was being developed for the Super Famicom. That's the Japanese version of the Super Nintendo, around 1994. And just like Star Fox, the cartridge would have had a Super FX chip inside. Those chips were fully capable of rendering 3D polygons and would have made Zelda one of the most powerful games on the console. Maybe the most powerful. Not only that, but Nintendo also put some of their top developers on the project. Zelda Super FX has been shrouded in mystery for decades, but thanks to some leaks and new translations, we've got some early Link models, animations, and some information never available in English before. In a 1995 issue of Edge Magazine, Miyamoto said they were going to release a lot of Super FX games over the coming year, but only four of them ended up making it to store shelves. Several more were in development, but ultimately got cancelled, the most famous of which was Star Fox 2. It was 100% complete, but Nintendo threw it in the trash because they were afraid it was going to look like trash compared to games already coming out on the PlayStation, with them specifically citing Ridge Racer. Side-by-side -side comparisons would have made Nintendo look weak and behind the times, so they decided to slow their roll with 3D until the Nintendo 64 launched a year later. We heard that there was a Zelda title that met the same fate, and some details could be found in the official Japanese strategy guide for Star Fox 64. So we bought a copy from Japan and had it translated. Inside there was a six-page interview where Miyamoto and a few other devs reveal not only the cancelled game's existence, but also that Takayo Shimizu, Kazuaki Morita, and Takaya Imamura were all working on it. For folks unfamiliar with these guys, well basically they're all Nintendo OGs. Just to name some of their highlights, Shimizu was Star Fox 64's director and also directed BS Zelda, the Zelda 1 remake only released in Japan. Morita programmed the original Adventure of Link and was the main programmer on Ocarina of Time. And Imamura was art director on Majora's Mask as well as the creator of Star Fox, Captain Falcon, and Tingle. In the interview translation, Shimizu says, Actually, the three of us were working on a Super Famicom version of Adventure of Link. But then the 64 wave came and I told Miyamoto that it would take two years to make this Link game. He asked me what the heck I was talking about. Miyamoto chimes in and says, I was quite shocked. The interviewer asks, so this was some time ago? Miyamoto replies, yeah, back when there were still tyrannosaurs roaming Japan. Just kidding. Jokes aside though, yeah, we started Star Fox 64 a year before the N64 came out. 
All of these guys went on to have prominent roles in Star Fox 64's development, so it sounds like Link died so Fox could fly. Simply put, Zelda got cancelled because it would have arrived too late in the Super Famicom's life cycle, about a year after the Nintendo 64 was already on the market. That's why it got cancelled. But what kind of game would it have been? Even in Japan, not much else was known until 2011. That's when Yoshiaki Kazumi revealed he was part of the team as well and dropped a few more details. He said, I really like Zelda 2 The Adventure of Link, before Super Mario 64. I had actually been making Adventure of Link in polygons with Miyamoto. When asked if he meant for Super Famicom, Koizumi said yes, we were experimenting with a thin polygon Link, seen from the side, and fighting with his sword. Chanbara was a pending issue at the time. We couldn't really bring Adventure of Link into form at that time, but I kept that desire to achieve a sword-fighting Legend of Zelda game until I joined the Ocarina of Time team. Chanbara here basically means exaggerated samurai-style sword fighting. The original Adventure of Link introduced the down thrust, up thrust, and a few other moves, but combat was still pretty basic. Ocarina's combat was very much influenced by Chanbara, and would have been interesting to see how they would have implemented it into Zelda Super FX. Koyazumi was scriptwriter for Link's Awakening, so with him and those three other rock stars on the job and Miyamoto overseeing it, Adventure of Link had all the ingredients to become something special. A lot of fans consider the original Adventure of Link the black sheep of the franchise, and Miyamoto appears to think so too. In 2013, Miyamoto was asked if he'd ever made a bad game, and he said, I wouldn't say that I've ever made a bad game per se, but a game I think we could have done more with was Zelda 2: The Adventure of Link. When we're designing games, we have our plan for what we're going to design, but in our process it evolves and grows from there. In Zelda 2: The Adventure of Link, unfortunately all we ended up creating was what we originally had on paper. Now, almost a decade later, with a dream team, more powerful hardware, and some new ideas, it seems Miyamoto was aiming to fix what they had failed to do the first time. But unfortunately, they waited too long to start making it. And by 1995, the PlayStation was making the super effects look like cave drawings. In the two interviews where the game gets mentioned, the devs call it Adventure of Link for Super Famicom. Some Japanese fan wikis classify it as a sequel to the original Famicom game, but the primary sources don't specify if it was actually a sequel or more of a remake. We spoke briefly to one of the game's developers, but he'd only confirmed that he had worked on it and refused to define if it was either a remake or a sequel. Nintendo doesn't like squealers, unfortunately. And they had never released a single screenshot of the game. But in 2020, the GigaLeak revealed what appeared to be early Link models from the abandoned project. They were found in a file called the Koizumi and dated July 27, 1994, which implies Nintendo worked on the game for about a year before scrapping it to begin work on Star Fox 64. The models were discovered by a modder named Starkson, who already had tons of experience with the Super Effects after reverse engineering Star Fox years before. What you're seeing now is Link imported into the Star Fox engine, because they use the same model format and the same standard color palette. We got in touch with Starkson and asked if he thinks that these models are from the long-lost adventure of Link. He said, they are very early experiments. They surely have something to do with what Koizumi was describing in that Awada interview. But they seem to be very, very early in the process. Starkson's a bit of an expert on the SuperFX chip, so we asked if it was capable of more complex models that could have looked, you know, uh, better, or if this was as lifelike as it was going to get. He said with enemies, obstacles, and scenery, they couldn't have made models much more detailed than what you're seeing now. Although it's worth noting, Link probably would have been a different color in the final game, and also would have been a lot smaller and surrounded by the game world. So he wouldn't have come across as quite so blocky. After all, if you look at pretty much anything from that era close enough, it all looks like lifeless squares. Starkson also told us that as far as he knows, no one's found any other assets in the GigaLeak like items, locations, or other character models. But that said, the leak contained tens of thousands of files, so maybe there's more in there that data miners haven't found yet. It's possible that someday they'll dig up the right file and discover a half-built Hyrule. So until more information is either revealed by Nintendo or found in a leak, what we've shared in this video is everything there is to know since the game's cancellation 25 years ago. While we
we were searching the internet for more details, we stumbled over a Japanese fan site that engaged in an interesting thought experiment, and we'll close out this segment by sharing their thoughts on what they call The Adventure of Link 2, the unfinished fifth Zelda game. They write, It seems development ended halfway through due to timing issues, but one wonders what kind of game it would have been if development continued. After it released, maybe the franchise would have split into two, a sub-series for 3D and a sub-series for side-scrolling Zeldas, like what happened to the Mario franchise. If this project was released to the world, perhaps the history of Zelda would have been different. Whether that timeline was better or worse than the one we're currently living in, we'll leave that up to you to decide. Next up is a Zelda diorama game pitched internally at Nintendo around 2012. The short version of the story is that Captain Toad Treasure Tracker was originally pitched as a Zelda game. It got good review scores when it launched, but it probably would have been more interesting and sold better if it starred Link instead of Toad. Unfortunately though, Miyamoto said it couldn't be a Zelda game. Then the pitch was literally set on fire and destroyed. But let's get into the long version of the story, which features three main characters. Koichi Hayashida, the director and producer of 3D Mario games, Shinya Hiratake, a Mario level designer, and of course, Shigeru Miyamoto. After wrapping up development on Super Mario 3D Land, the team started exploring ideas for a new Wii U game. Fans complained about how the camera worked in early 3D Mario, so Galaxy and 3D Land ditched the player-controlled camera in favor for a camera that controlled itself. Wanting to try something new on the Wii U, the devs experimented with a new type of Mario game where every stage was a standalone miniature world, a diorama, and spinning it around with the camera was one of the core mechanics. But they ended up deciding it wasn't a good format for Mario, and they wanted to make a Zelda game out of it instead. According to Hayashida, when we started working on Super Mario 3D World, we created a number of tests, one of which was a stage where you look in from the outside, a little diorama stage using Mario. The thing we noticed was that if Mario could jump, the stages become pretty big, so we wondered whether it would be possible to make a game with a character who can't jump. Hirotake submitted an idea to Mr. Miyamoto, the father of both Super Mario and Zelda, to use Link as the character. We wanted to make this into its own game, separate from 3D World. In a Japanese interview we translated, Hirotake says he built a little diorama out of paper mache, a tiny little Zelda world. In another interview he said, we always wanted to think about how we can introduce more 3D games to people. So we wanted to build a sandbox, a small contained world that has a linear path. When we were thinking about which characters don't jump, we thought of Link from The Legend of Zelda. After some preparation, Hirotake took his paper mache diorama and pitched it to Miyamoto and a few other executives. He spun it around, imitating the camera mechanic. Miyamoto liked it, but he was sort of confused. He thought Hirotake wanted to manufacture physical dioramas and sell them as toys, kind of like Lego sets. When Hirotake said, no, I want to make a Zelda video game, Miyamoto soured and told him no, but he would let them use it as a minigame in Super Mario 3D World. That's when Link got swapped out for Captain Toad, who, the devs reasoned, also can't jump because he wears a heavy backpack. After 3D World was finished, Miyamoto liked the six Captain Toad stages so much that he said, you know what, actually, I think it would be a good idea to make this into its own game. One year later, that game released as Captain Toad Treasure Tracker. According to Hayashida, the game's first boss, being a dragon, was actually a leftover from when they were thinking it'd be a Zelda title. This may be why it bears some resemblance to Valu from Wind Waker's first boss fight. A few other ideas appear to be leftovers as well, like collecting keys and unlocking doors, something you don't see much of in Mario games. Almost all of Treasure Tracker's 70-plus dioramas are tributes to some slice of the overall Mario franchise, like this one, themed after the original 1981 Donkey Kong arcade game. A few more are reminiscent of the series' green grass, desert ice, and fire levels. And there are also some nods to the series' spin-offs, like this homage to Luigi's Mansion. If Treasure Tracker stayed part of the Zelda IP, we likely would have gotten dioramas based on Zelda 1, A Link to the Past, Coherent Island, Kakariko Village, Termina, The Great Sea, and so on. Besides the Dragon Boss, a few other Captain Toad levels already feel like they'd be at home in Zelda Treasure Tracker. 
Tracker. This train stage could have easily been themed after Spirit Tracks, and this stealth stage feels pretty similar to the stealth sequence in Ocarina of Time's Castle Courtyard. None of that's too far-fetched, it's just unfortunate that the original pitch went the way it did. In that Japanese interview, Hayashida says if Hiratake had given a better presentation, there's a chance it would have been a different game with Zelda instead. Then the interviewer asked Hiratake what ended up happening to that paper mache Zelda diorama. I burned it, he said. It was such a bad memory that I decided to let it die. With an average review score of 82%, Captain Toad was a solid game, but unfortunately its protagonist just didn't have the star power of Mario or Link, so most people never gave it a chance. Even after it was ported to the Switch, Treasure Tracker never managed to sell well. It even reviewed better than many Zelda spin-offs and remakes, but sold far less, so maybe things would have been different if it starred Link. And maybe Miyamoto turning down Hiratake's original pitch wasn't the best business decision. Treasure Tracker is almost a decade old at this point, without a sequel in sight, so apparently Nintendo didn't think it sold too well either, at least not well enough to become its own side series. There is a silver lining to this story though. It seems Hiratake's pitch may have had an impact in a way he never could have expected. In 2019, Nintendo announced a Switch remake of Link's Awakening, with a new art direction that series producer Eiji Anuma called a miniature diorama style, with Link modeled after a 10cm figure. They even built some real-life dioramas of Kohelent Island and showed them off at E3. The devs never explicitly stated the new look was inspired by Hiratake's pitch, but considering the proximity of events and the unique art style, it seems unlikely to have all just been a coincidence. And now on to the next game we're going to talk about, Ura Zelda, a disk drive expansion to Ocarina of Time that met a similar fate as Zelda Super FX. Ura Zelda has been covered by countless other YouTube channels already, but a lot of them are filled with rumors and half-truths. We managed to dig up some new information on what was real and what wasn't. So we figured what the hell, there's probably room on YouTube for at least one more video. For the past two decades, there have been two schools of thought. The fans with a wildly overinflated idea of what Ura Zelda really was, like that Zora's domain was going to get unfrozen, and Link could finally outrace the Running Man, and the opposite side of the spectrum. The fans who insist it was never going to be anything more than the Master Quest, the GameCube bonus disc that was just Ocarina of Time with remixed dungeons and increased difficulty. But really, the truth is somewhere in the middle. At a Q&A session around the time Ocarina's development was wrapping up, someone asked Miyamoto, will there be a 64DD Zelda or an add-on for Ocarina of Time? He said, I don't know if add-on is the right terminology. For the 64DD, we are working on a Zelda game, which we call Ura Zelda, where you first play Ocarina of Time. After finishing everything, you can enter into the world, into the basic design of the same. The basic design of the same. Pretty vague, right? Possibly poor translation work from 1990s American press, but even if that's the case with this particular quote, it's fair to say Miyamoto used a lot of vague language to describe what Ura Zelda was going to be throughout its entire development. He did occasionally drop some solid details though, but unfortunately, not usually in English. At this point in our research, we had to dig through a few thousand old gaming magazines from around the world to find all the Ura Zelda interviews. So let's work our way through them. Then, onto some data mining. The week Ocarina hit store shelves, Miyamoto told NextGen Magazine, Ocarina of Time was designed with the introduction of the DD in mind, and if you load the game with the drive connected to your system, you will see a different title screen option, which says Ura Zelda, another version of Zelda. This was actually a mistranslation from Next Generation. I've got my copy of Ocarina and a 64DD right here next to me. This is what you'd see. It doesn't actually say Ura Zelda, it just says disc. When you boot up the cartridge with the DD attached, the game will just boot per usual. However, we can trick 
trick the game into thinking Ura is present with a custom disc or software emulation. Every Ocarina cartridge was manufactured with the expectation that Ura Zelda was already on the way and millions of players were going to connect it to their Ocarina carts. Never happened, obviously, but we'll get into that later. In that same interview, Miyamoto goes on to say, There were several ideas I could not incorporate into Zelda because of the lack of time and various other factors. For example, I wanted to create some extra dungeons and challenges for those who had completed the quest, and we planned them for the predicted introduction of the DD. One feature in particular that Miyamoto wanted to do in Ocarina, but couldn't, was connectivity features with the Game Boy. Talking to Japanese magazine 64 Dream, he said Majora's Mask would not let players create custom masks, but hinted they might be able to do so in Ura Zelda, by using the Game Boy camera together with Mario Artist. At the time, Nintendo was already experimenting with a similar feature from Mother 3, another disk drive game that never saw the light of day. But we weren't sure if that stuff actually got worked on, or if it was just an early idea Miyamoto threw out there willy-nilly in a couple of interviews. Lucky for us, us, tons of N64 development assets dropped in the 2020 GigaLeak. We wanted to dig through them and check for mask customization in Ura Zelda, but frankly, it's a lot more complicated than we're equipped to handle. So we talked to Luigi Blood, an Ocarina of Time modder and 64DD enthusiast who'd already spent countless hours digging through all that leaked data. We'll try not to use too much technical jargon, but basically he told us that Ocarina's assets showed it was compatible with Mario Artist, just like Miyamoto talked about. That compatibility was removed from Ocarina's retail release, but Luigi Blood noted, they also mess with masks during Urizelda development. There are traces where they seemingly wanted to do something with the Gerudo mask and Keaton mask. Unfortunately, I don't know what for, as the disk source code is not present in the GigaLeak. Only the base information and make files. All I can see is that the disk side code keeps track of the model file location, possibly to replace the mask files. In other words, new mask stuff in Urizelda was indeed more than just empty chatter. Nintendo was actually making it at one point. Another interesting feature Miyamoto talked about was an online component. In the August 98 issue of Nintendo Power, having just finished making Ocarina, Miyamoto said, We've already talked about a network Zelda as an interesting idea. The assistance of other players in the network could motivate a player's active participation instead of the traps or secrets that I create. And the 64DD was fully capable of accessing the internet. In fact, most people who bought it paid 2,500 yen a month for an online subscription. But again, we weren't sure if those network features actually got worked on. We checked with Luigi Blood, but he said there weren't any traces in the GigaLeak. But the leak was incomplete and missing lots of data, so network features not being in there didn't necessarily mean they weren't in development. Fortunately, Miyamoto wasn't alone in that Nintendo Power interview. There were three other Zelda developers, one of them being a very young Giles Goddard. Giles was the first non-Japanese programmer to ever work for Nintendo, basically because Nintendo couldn't find anyone in Japan who could match his WizKid programming skills. Giles worked on Star Fox, which was revolutionary for achieving 3D in the 16-bit era, and he also made the stretchy face for Super Mario 64. More importantly, though, he worked on Zelda. Giles left Nintendo in 2002, and now he lives on a small, idyllic Japanese island running his own studio and making games like Curse to Golf. We tracked him down to ask some questions about the old days. We talked for half an hour about various projects, and toward the end, we read him the quote from his interview with Miyamoto in 1998. Here's his response. Do you recall any specifics regarding work on this network Zelda that have never been that have never made their way into a finished Zelda game? Yes. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. 
When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and I want to stay alive, so I'm not going to say what. Giles wasn't willing to share any details beyond the fact that they did work on those network features that were never made public, and that they were, and still are, top secret. But just knowing Network Zelda was more than empty chatter was interesting in itself. Miyamoto saying players would replace his traps and secrets kind of sounds like a dungeon builder, where you could design your own dungeons and share them online. We went looking for evidence, but eventually realized that wasn't the correct interpretation when we found a German magazine where Miyamoto specifically said no, there won't be a dungeon builder. Interestingly though, he does describe a different dungeon system than the static remixes that made their way into Master Quest. Instead of simply remixing dungeons, he said they were going to be randomized. The Germans asked what'll make Ura different from Ocarina, and Miyamoto said simply put, there will be a random element. Every time you go into a dungeon, the composition will be different. For example, if a treasure chest was in a certain place the first time you entered the dungeon, it won't be there the next time, but will be in a completely different location. Then he says there won't be a dungeon builder or something like an online versus mode, but because of the 64 DD's read and write capabilities, they're thinking about new downloadable dungeons and sharing other data with players. That seems to line up with what he told a Mexican magazine a couple months later, that there's a potential for hundreds of dungeons. Both of these interviews were in late 1999 though. By then, it seems Miyamoto had already given up on adding new features outside of Hyrule's dungeons. That's because at that point, Ura Zelda had already been neutered in favor of Majora's Mask due to Eiji Anuma thinking Ura wouldn't make a worthy sequel. Talking to Nintendo president Satoru Iwata, he said Miyamoto felt like there was still a lot left to do and wanted to make new ways to play and a new story. But as Ocarina's dungeon director, Aonuma just couldn't get excited about making new ones for Ura. So Miyamoto offered a compromise. Instead of using Ocarina's assets to make a flip side game, if they could use those assets to make an entirely new game in one year, then Aonuma wouldn't have to work on Ura Zelda. Aonuma took the deal. Then he and most of the Ocarina team broke off to work on Majora's Mask, leaving a much smaller team left to work on Ura. Even Miyamoto, originally the driving force behind the expansion, abandoned it to focus its attention exclusively on Majora's Mask. With most of its resources stripped, all of those earlier ideas about custom masks, network features, and new story elements fell by the wayside. And that's how Ura Zelda became Master Quest. Instead of an ambitious expansion, it was downgraded to a second quest with remixed dungeons. In a few interviews, Miyamoto teased the idea of releasing Ocarina with remixed dungeons as a $20 and 64 cartridge. But by the time Ura's development wrapped up in June of 2000, the GameCube was was right around the corner, so they threw it in as a Wind Waker pre-order incentive, and the rest is history. 
Well, not really though. It's one of the most legendary cancelled games of all time, so history never really ends and the rumors just keep on coming. So we need to debunk some new rumors that came out of the 2020 Giga Leak. You might have heard news that 64DD files were discovered for 9 mini dungeons, which were intended as a sort of boss rush mode that got cut during Ura's development. Here's the first one, which is only two rooms based on the Deku Tree. A modder named Zell was kind enough to reconstruct all 9 mini dungeons for us. Here's the footage of what it looks like to actually play them. You fight a few enemies, get some treasure, then fight a boss. Most of them are a little bigger, like the Spirit Temple mini dungeon. When they were discovered in the Giga Leak, since they were 64DD files, a lot of fans thought that they were an Ura Zelda boss rush, and that's what got reported by various websites and YouTubers. A new mode would have been awesome, and really help make Ura feel like a true expansion to Ocarina, but unfortunately, the reality isn't quite as exciting. These mini dungeons were actually developed before Ocarina was finished, and they appear to just be placeholders for testing out the 64DD's hooks. Hooks are basically just the things that let the game replace one thing for another. In this case, swapping out dungeons. Luigi Blood spent a long time cataloging all of the hooks, and he told us, when they made the retail version of Ocarina of Time, they had to have a base disc expansion for testing, because it would have been bad if the game came out with a bad disc expansion code within. The only hooks I've seen are for rooms, scenes, dungeon mini-maps, dungeon maps for the pause menu, text, scene processing, and ROM loading. Although, you can technically replace almost anything except sound and music, including NPCs and NPC code, for example. But, the 64DD hook system felt badly planned for new features. Not impossible to implement new features, but oddly more complicated than it could have been designed. Miyamoto did say he wanted to expand on Hyrule's NPCs, but it seems that ambition was ultimately pursued in Majora's Mask rather than in Ura. Speaking of which, early versions of the Swamp Spider House and Beneath the Well were also found in Ura's leaked files, which led to more rumors that they were originally created for Ura, but got repurposed for Majora's Mask. But those files were added to Ura in May 2000, after Majora had already released in Japan, so it seems they were also just for testing purposes and never actually meant for inclusion in Ura Zelda. This was a pretty complicated section, so here's the general takeaway. Nintendo designed the hooks to be capable of much more than just remixed dungeons. So some features were actually in development and discussed publicly by Miyamoto after he had already finished making Ocarina, like mask customization and online connectivity. In that sense, you could say Ura Zelda really was more than Master Quest, but a lot of the rumors and fan expectations of what Ura Zelda should have been, like unfreezing Zoro's domain and outracing the Running Man, were just fake. They were never promised by Nintendo, and there's no evidence they were ever in development. And as a side note, while we're talking about the Running Man, during our research we actually found out why you can't beat him in Ocarina. And that's probably a good way to end today's video. In the April 99 issue of Nintendo Dream Magazine, the interviewer asks point blank, why can't you outrace the Running Man? Ocarina's map data manager, Shigeo Kimura, takes the question and explains, quote, The running man seems like someone you can beat, but you can't. That effectively makes him Link's greatest rival in Hyrule. In a way, he's even more powerful than Ganon. But really, the reason's because we didn't have anything to give the player as a reward for beating him. So there's your answer to the great mystery. The devs don't let you beat him because they didn't have anything special to give you. I guess they didn't want to give us another huge rupee. Did you know? The late Satoru Iwata wanted to make a pre-order bonus disc for Twilight Princess. Years earlier, Wind Waker racked up over half a million sales before launch, breaking the record for the most pre-ordered game ever. This was in no small part thanks to the Master Quest bonus disc, which was such a strong incentive that many fans pre-ordered just for the disc and then cancelled their pre-order. This led Nintendo to bundle the Master Quest and the Wind Waker together when it later launched in Europe. 
After the GameCube lost the 6th generation console war to the PlayStation 2 and Xbox, Nintendo was desperate to make the Wii a success, and with Twilight Princess as its flagship launch title, a pre-order bonus disc would have been a shrewd business move. Eight months before launch, an interviewer asked Zelda director Eiji Inuma if there would be a Wind Waker-style bonus disc, to which he responded, With the size of the game, it may have to. We are currently considering adding a second disc as a bonus, but this is yet to be finalized. I think Mr. Iwasha is keen for this to happen, but we shall see. Electronic Gaming Monthly magazine announced the details. For a $10 deposit, fans would get a copy of The Wind Waker visually remade with the graphics of Twilight Princess, and with the two dungeons Miyamoto said were cut due to Wind Waker's hasty production. It sounded too good to be true, and unfortunately, it was. It was EGM's sick idea of an April Fool's prank. The unfortunate reality was Nintendo never actually got around to making a pre-order bonus. Although it's worth noting, they did release a very limited edition collector's box. This had a six-song soundtrack, high-quality 1-6-scale replicas of the Master Sword and the Hylian Shield, and a certificate of authenticity. Back then, a collector's box sold for $40, but only 7,000 were ever made, so today they've skyrocketed in value to hundreds of dollars apiece. And as it turns out, a Twilight Princess pre-order bonus disc did sort of become a reality 10 years later. This was when the HD version released on Wii U, although it was only a 20-song soundtrack. A much more impressive OST released exclusively in Japan, featuring 108 tracks, including this bonus track for Hyrule Field, which is playing right now. This was originally recorded for the Cube version, but never got used in-game. It can only be found by snooping around the internal data, but it made its way into disc 2 of the Japanese soundtrack collection. A pre-order bonus disc wasn't the only thing Nintendo wanted to give Twilight Princess fans, but couldn't. There was also a multiplayer mode. In Wind Waker, a second player can connect a GBA to take control of Tingle, who can access information, drop bombs, and sell stuff to the first player, such as blue potions and a temporary hover ability. In a 2005 interview with Spanish magazine Club Nintendo, Aonuma said, Wind Waker had GBA connectivity, but we would have to try something different that offered something different, otherwise we wouldn't be innovative. We're testing out different things, and if we find something that's fun and interesting, we'll do it. And a year later, he told EGM, Online functionality is something we've been thinking about for a long time. At this point, we've given up on having any kind of online battle mode or simultaneous play, but we are still thinking about different elements that make the game more fun for those who have their systems connected to the internet. It's my job to come up with that, and we haven't quite found what the hook should be for online play. Looking back at Zelda's history shows that Miyamoto publicly flirted with vague ideas of multiplayer as far back as the 64DD era, talking about a network Zelda where the assistance of other participants would motivate a player's actions. Presumably, those are some of the ideas Aonuma said they've been thinking about for a long time, but even though it's part of his job to incorporate online functionality, it seems he never landed on the right idea. But he did say whatever the multiplayer mode was gonna be, it wouldn't include Tingle. Not because he already had his turn in Wind Waker, but because American fans just didn't like him. And the entire point of Twilight Princess's development, above all else, was to make an American Zelda. To explain what I mean by an American Zelda, let's rewind to 2004, back when it looked like Twilight Princess might be the last Zelda. Despite being one of the most expensive series to develop, Zelda sales had been steadily on the decline ever since Ocarina of Time. Japanese players were becoming less interested in video games in general, and Wind Waker didn't sell nearly as much in America as Nintendo expected. They were originally planning on making Wind Waker 2, 
But the situation was so dire, they decided their best hope of saving the franchise from extinction was to cancel it and develop an American Zelda instead. As Aonuma explained it, I began to worry whether Wind Waker 2, which used a similar cel-shaded art style, was something that would actually sell. We knew what a challenge it would be to develop something that would sell in the Japanese market, where Game Adrift was happening. That's when I decided that if we didn't have an effective and immediate solution, the only thing we could do was give the healthier, North American market the Zelda they wanted. We knew that we would have to create a Zelda game that would live up to the expectations of fans in North America, and that if we didn't, it could mean the end of the franchise. Ocarina of Time was incredibly popular in America, so they switched the art style and initially considered making Ocarina's direct sequel. To quote Aonuma directly, it would have taken place some years later. The art department sketched Links who looked 25 to 30 years old, but the overseas staff featured the designs and told them fans didn't want to play as an old Link. Nintendo of America helped pick Link's voice actor as well, choosing one that gave Link a sort of bad boy vibe. The Zelda team ultimately decided that instead of an older version of Ocarina Link, they'd use a totally different Link that was 16 or 17, and instead of a few years, it would take place a few decades after Ocarina. And because it wasn't too far in the future, some of the characters from Ocarina might still be alive in Twilight Princess. In a later interview, Aonuma made a couple of references to Navi providing feedback to the player, so it seems she was one of the characters planned to make a return. It certainly would have given the team a chance to tie up some loose ends after Navi's mysterious departure in the final moments of Ocarina. But at Miyamoto's request, Midna was created mid-development, so Wolf Link wouldn't be so boring to look at from behind. Midna then gradually became a more central character as development continued, so it seems she eventually took Navi's place as Link's navigator. It can't be said with certainty that's why Navi Navi got axed, but it ultimately became a moot point when the Zelda team decided to push the timeline back even further. In the final build, Twilight Princess was changed to take place one century after Ocarina, so instead of appearing in the flesh, Ocarina's characters are merely referenced, like King Zora, whose grave can be found in Kakariko's graveyard, and a black and white picture of the fishing hole man kept by his descendant Hina. Although there was one character that made a return. The ancient hero who teaches you seven hidden skills is heavily implied to be Link from Ocarina of Time. Every previous Zelda game was revealed in Japan, but Twilight Princess broke precedent and was unveiled in America at E3 2004, and even the trailer itself was put together by Nintendo of America. The developers would later say the audience's enthusiastic applause cemented the direction the game would take over the next two years, and several developers said when they started feeling burnt out, they'll think back to E3's cheering applause to boost morale and continue development. According to then-Nintendo president Satoru Iwata, I think that people looking in from outside think that Nintendo's Zelda team is incredibly experienced, capable of maintaining its motivation and carrying large projects through to the finish without any external input. But as it turns out, everyone on the Zelda team is only human after all. When development was finally finished, Twilight Princess launched two weeks earlier in America than it did in Japan, and was met with both critical and commercial success. Reviewers gave it an average score of about 9.6, and fans snatched it up so fast that it outsold Ocarina of Time and became the best-selling game in the series with almost 9 million copies. Ten years later, Nintendo decided to give the most successful Zelda the deluxe treatment with an HD remaster, but they were so secretive about it that Eiji Onuma couldn't even tell his own family it was being made. 
His 12-year-old son was too young when the original came out, so in 2015, he was suddenly inspired to dig out his Wii and play the biggest game his dad ever directed. Aonuma wanted to tell him a better version was coming soon, but he wasn't allowed. Telling the story after the game was officially announced, he said, I'm quite sad that I wasn't able to tell my son that if he waited a little bit longer, he'd be able to play an HD version. But his son's misfortune was actually a blessing in disguise that gave Aonuma ideas for improvement. In the Wii version, the magic armor makes Link invincible, but eats up a ton of rupees. When his son acquired it during his playthrough, he tried it out for a few minutes, then said it was a waste of money, and never used it again. That really stuck with Aonuma, because Miyamoto hadn't wanted to include it, and Aonuma had to fight to get it in the game. So for the HD remaster, Aonuma made it so every wallet could hold more rupees, and even added a brand new colossal wallet, which increased the maximum rupees all the way up to 9,999. So now he hoped that maybe fans like his son would at least consider using the magic armor. But in Aonuma's opinion, Twilight Princess HD was still missing one very important addition. The Wii U remaster launched with the Wolf Link amiibo, and 15 other amiibo unlocked various features in the game as well. But Aonuma says he also wanted to make a Talma amiibo. To be honest, he seems to have some kind of weird obsession with her, and brings her up in countless interviews. As director, it's not his job to create NPCs, but for some reason he took it upon himself to get directly involved with Telma's design. In case you've forgotten, Telma's an older woman who's very forward with Link, who in turn steals a few, uh, adult glances at her throughout his adventure. Aonuma's made it no secret that she's his favorite character in the game, and says if there was a bartender like her in real life, he'll definitely go to her bar. He also says he likes the idea of getting scolded by her. But Aonuma isn't the only director that left his mark on Twilight Princess HD. In the original game, there were so many textures on buildings and features that were just slightly too blurry to make out, such as this mural in Hyrule Castle Town. Fans had wondered what the mural was supposed to say, but even extracting the texture from the game's files didn't help anyone decipher it. When the HD version released, the textures were updated with clearer, brand new designs, giving fans an impression of what the original textures may have depicted. Interestingly, this particular mural features a Rito, a species which does not exist in the time the game takes place, nor in the series' child timeline. Another improved texture can be found in the Temple of Time, a simple picture frame, but this frame holds a secret, a backwards message written in Hylian along the lower border. Translating it reveals a hidden developer credit. Jack Kirby Crosby made this. Crosby, a graphic designer who worked on the HD version, later confirmed he was responsible for both the hidden border and the mural, the latter of which was a result of a higher-up at Nintendo, asking for some engravings in Hyrule Castle Town to be redone in the same style as a shop Crosby had retextured. The new mural design was inspired by Crosby's own idea of a story for a Zelda game, and drew additional inspiration from a Zelda art book without any story direction from Nintendo, meaning the events depicted therein are non-canon. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.
and welcome to Easter Egg Hunting, a show that dissects your favorite video games looking for hidden secrets and Easter eggs. We're going to try our hardest to show you all and any Easter eggs we can find in any game, and we'll even be throwing in some trivia as well. We'll be covering the Legend of Zelda series this time around, so let's start off with the first of the main series Zelda games, the original The Legend of Zelda. The Easter eggs in Zelda 1 start almost immediately. If you name your character Zelda on the name input screen, the game lets you start the second quest before completing the game. For those not in the know, the second quest is a harder remix version of the main quest that's unlocked by beating the game. For now, we'll be sticking to the first quest. There's also a possible reference to Norse mythology near the start of the game. In Norse mythology, there's a dragon named Nidhogg that gnaws at the foot of the giant tree Yggdrasil. Similar to that, the first dungeon in Zelda is entered through a giant tree, and the dungeon under it has a dragon as its boss. Moving on to the second dungeon, you'll encounter the Dodongo boss. The name Dodongo can be derived from Dodon, the Japanese onomatopoeia for the sound of an explosion. This fits in contextually as the boss has a weakness to bombs. The third dungeon in the game is named and shaped after a manji. Manji are symbols often used to mark the locations of Buddhist temples on maps, amongst other things. They often spark controversy due to their visual similarity to swastikas. Within this dungeon, we first encounter the Dark Nut enemies. The Japanese name for a Dark Nut can be translated as Tart Knuckle, romanized as Tato Naku. This implies a relation between Dark Nuts and Iron Knuckles, as they share the same naming convention. The game's Japanese manual also states that the third boss, Manhadla, is a large piranha plant from the Super Mario Bros. series. In subsequent games, like the Oracle of Seasons, this connection is made more apparent in Manhadla's colors and design. Within the game's fourth dungeon, the player will encounter the shield-eating like-like enemies. Like-likes are derived from the Japanese proverb, Tateku Mushi Mosukisuki. The proverb translates as, even water pepper-eating bugs have preferences, and roughly means, everyone has their own preferences, or even, everyone has their own like-likes. Like-likes are a reference to the proverb because of their taste for eating shields. The Japanese iragana for shield and water pepper are very similar in spelling. If you were to slightly corrupt the word shield into water pepper, the like-likes would be similar to the water pepper eating bugs from the proverb. It's also possible that the fourth boss, Gliok, is based on the Hydra of Greek mythology. Gliok is a multi-headed lizard, and every time you beat it, you see it at a later point in the game with more heads than before. In Greek mythology, the Hydra grows two heads every time one head is chopped off. Moving on to the fifth dungeon, we'll find the Digdogger boss. According to the Japanese manual, Digdogger is a giant Unira from the game Clue Clue Land. It's also worth noting that the Octoroks in Zelda also bear a striking resemblance to the Uniras, and the sprites used for the rupees in The Legend of Zelda also come from Kluku Land. Wrapping up the first Zelda, all of the game's dungeons have names, and the shape of each dungeon is based on this name. The names are Eagle, Moon, the aforementioned Manji, Snake, Lizard, Dragon, Demon, Lion, and Death Mountain, which is represented as a skull. All of the dungeon maps can be pieced together to make a rectangular grid. This was likely done to save space on the cartridge. This is also true for the second quest dungeons, which can spell out Zelda. Now we've reached Zelda 2, The Adventure of Link. This game is easily the least well-documented of the Zelda series, probably due to its mixed reception, but it still has a few interesting easter eggs and secrets that we are going to share with you. 
One of the first biomes in the game is the desert area. If the player goes into these areas, they can encounter the Geldarm enemies. The name of the Geldarm is similar to that of the Geld Man from A Link to the Past, another desert-faring creature. In Japanese, Geld is written and read the same as Gerudo, suggesting a connection between the Sand Monsters Geldarm and Geld Man, but also the Gerudo race featured in later games. This connection is lost in translation and is the first use of the word Gerudo in the series. If the player is defeated during a confrontation, they'll see the game over screen. The Western versions of the game actually reuse sound effects from Punch-Out and they sound noticeably similar to Soda Papinski's laugh. The original Japanese game over screen just had Ganon making a generic roaring sound. If the player goes to the town of Rudo, they can find a man who states, I am error. It was thought for a long time that this was an actual error, and the game was incorrectly reading the character's name. However, it seems to be a joke by Nintendo. There's another character linked to error named Bagu. Bagu is the Japanese romanization for bug. Together, these characters are Error and Bug, and act as a technical reference to errors and programming bugs. The game's localization staff were supposed to rename Bagu to Bug in order to complete the joke, but the humorous intention must have been lost on them. Ironically, Bagu's naming was the mistake in the English version, not Errors. If the player starts heading to Saria Town, they'll come across Maruge Swamp. The swamp's name was inaccurately translated into English when the game was localized. The Japanese name Maruge Numa translates to Morgue Swamp, tying in with the names of other grim-sounding locations like Death Mountain and Valley of Death. Past the swamp is a bridge where the player will see Bago Bago enemies. Because these enemies have a similar naming convention and behavior to Mario's Cheap Cheap enemies, they might be a reference to the Mushroom Kingdom's fish. There is a grave in Saria Town, and in the Japanese version of the game, the grave reads, The hero Lodo rests here. This is a reference to Dragon Quest's legendary hero Lodo, or Rodo. Square made a similar reference to Zelda in the Japanese version of Final Fantasy I with a grave in Elfheim that reads, Here lies Link. This reference is fitting, as Elfheim is themed around elves, and Link resembles an elf. In the Western NES release of Final Fantasy, the gravestone says, Here lies Erdrick, referencing the English name of Dragon Quest's legendary hero. If the player moves on to Death Mountain, they can encounter the Akiman. These enemies are possibly a reference to the Devil from Devil World, a 1984 NES game designed by Shigeru Miyamoto and Takashi Tezuka. In addition to the similar appearance, the same fireball sound effect from Devil World was reused in Zelda 2. If a confrontation starts in the graveyards, it's possible to see the Moa enemies. These creatures are based on the concept of Hitodama from Japanese folklore. Hitodama are ghostly flaming balls that represent a deceased human soul. Within Midoro Palace are the Aneru enemies. The An in their name is the Japanese onomatopoeia that means to open your mouth wide, describing their behavior. The unnamed floating eye found in East Hyrule actually has a name in the Japanese version and is called Giruboku. The name evokes the Japanese onomatopoeia Giru meaning to stare at something, and possibly Boketo meaning to gaze vacantly. Also in this area are the Geru enemies which seem to be based on the Japanese tree lizard. Now in the Ocean Palace, or Palace on the Sea, the player can find the Mago enemies. Their name is likely derived from Maho, a Japanese word meaning magic, witchcraft, and sorcery. Mago is also the Portuguese, Spanish, and Italian word for magician. Now we've come to the final dungeon in the game, the Great Palace. In the palace are the Fokker enemies, whose names are likely based on the German word Vogel, which means bird. Their name could also be based on the Dutch aircraft manufacturer Fokker. The name of the boss in the dungeon, Thunderbird, may be a reference to the mythological Native American beast of the same name. 
Speaking of bosses, it's been noted that the relationship between Link and Link's shadow is similar to Peter Pan and his shadow. Both characters struggle with their shadows and both defeat their shadows in order to move on with their quests. Both shadows also have similar moves and actions. This connection is important to note as Link was directly inspired by Disney's Peter Pan. We've reached the third and arguably the best 2D Zelda game in the franchise, The Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past. After completing the game's introduction sequence and saving Zelda from the basement of Hyrule Castle, the player can go right and enter the cemetery. Pushing a gravestone creates a chance of spawning a Poe enemy. The Poe's name may be derived from the famous poet Edgar Allan Poe, who is known for his dark, gloomy works. The name could also come from the Chinese word Poe, meaning spirit. Towards the magic shop is a witch named Syrup. Her and her daughter Maple are an obvious reference to Maple Syrup. However, Syrup's reference to Shakespeare is not quite as obvious. After giving her a mushroom and acquiring the magic powder from inside the shop, Syrup will say, Double, double, toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble, referencing the play Macbeth. In the play, the same line is used by the Weird Sisters. Their chant is used to conjure a prophecy of Macbeth's eventual defeat at the hands of Macduff. If the player goes to Kakariko Village, they'll meet Sahasrala. His name may be a reference to the seventh chakra of Hinduism, the Sahasrara. This isn't the only reference to be found in Kakariko. There are portraits of Mario in houses around the village, and pulling on them gives the player some rupees. Also in Kakariko is a house owned by a woman dressed in blue. A kako can be found in a pot under the house. Using the magic powder on it turns the kako into a woman. She explains that the weathercock in the center of the village watches Link harass the kakos, and sends kakos to attack Link when he hits them. If the player goes north of Kakariko Village, they'll see two lumberjacks. The Japanese word for lumberjack is Kikori, and the name of the childlike race in Ocarina of Time is Kokiri, which is an anagram of Kikori. Considering the name and that the lumberjacks wear similar green outfits, this may be where the idea for the Kokiri race originated. When the player completes the Eastern Palace, they'll be given the Pegasus Boots. The Pegasus Boots get their name from Pegasus, a horse of ancient Greek origin. Pegasus is sometimes associated with speed, which would explain why the boots would be named after him. However, there could be more to this connection. Many Renaissance paintings depict Pegasus being tamed or ridden by Perseus. Perseus once acquired a pair of sandals that belonged to the god Hermes, and these sandals allowed whoever wore them to run extremely fast and even fly. Now on the way to Desert Palace. If the player solves the puzzle inside of the Swamp Ruins, the water will flow again and drain the swamp outside. This will cause a fish to appear, flopping around on the ground. If the player brings the fish to the street merchant in Kakariko Village, he'll give you 21 rupees, 10 arrows, 8 bombs, and a magic jar. Once in the Desert Palace, the player will come across some burrowing insect enemies known as Devilance, or Debirondo in the Japanese game. The Japanese name seems to be a combination of the words Debiru and Hondo, meaning Devil Hand. This dungeon also has the first appearance of the Power Glove in the Zelda series, a reference to Nintendo's NES Glove peripheral. Its in-game sprite even resembles its real-life counterpart. A similar glove appeared in Zelda 2, but it was called the Handy Glove in that game. On the way to the Tower of Hera, there's the Waterfall of Wishing and a cave housing a great fairy. Upon entering, the player will be asked to throw an item into the pond. If the player responds to the fairy honestly, she'll upgrade whatever item was thrown into the pond. This is likely a reference to the Aesop fable, The Honest Woodsman. In the story, a man accidentally throws his regular old axe into a lake. He then starts weeping, having lost his only means of livelihood. The god Hermes takes pity on him and goes to retrieve his axe. Hermes comes out from the lake with a golden axe and asks the man if it's his. The man says that it isn't. Hermes then finds a silver axe and then asks again. The man says that that isn't his axe either, but because of the man's honesty, Hermes lets the man take all three axes.
The Tower of Hera may be named after the famous ancient Greek goddess Hera, wife of Zeus. Although Zeus was king of the gods, it's sometimes said that Hera ruled over the home of the gods at Mount Olympus. The Tower of Hera is also at the top of Death Mountain, and parallels Hera living atop Mount Olympus. The bars of fire inside the tower, named Guru Guru Bars, seem to be a nod to the Super Mario Bros. franchise. They were actually intended to appear in the original The Legend of Zelda, but were moved to Super Mario Bros. instead. In Hyrule Castle Tower, the player will face off against Aghanim, and they can actually deflect and reflect Aghanim's magic using the bug-catching net instead of the sword. One of the first enemies the player sees after entering the Dark World is the Hinox. Hinox are based on Cyclops, but they also share some characteristics with Japanese Oni. Their upturned fangs and archaic clothing are similar to traditional illustrations of Oni. Continuing with Link's quest, if the player throws something into the Ring of Stones at the Lake of Ill Omen, a catfish appears and gives them the Quake Medallion. This catfish is based on Namazu from Japanese folklore, a giant catfish that causes earthquakes. Now we've reached the Palace of Darkness, where Link can acquire the Magic Hammer. In the Japanese release, the Magic Hammer is called the MC Hammer, referencing the famous rapper of the same name. Now that the player has the hammer, they can find another small secret back in the Light World. The player can now get past a pole that was blocking them outside Kakariko and fall into a hole. Throwing magic powder on the altar will summon the Mad Batter. This character appears in both A Link to the Past and Link's Awakening, and their name is likely a reference to the Mad Hatter from Alice in Wonderland. The name of the Swap Palace boss Argus may be a reference to Argus Panoptes. Panoptes was an all-seeing giant from Greek mythology and was often described as having 100 eyes. However, this reference is only for the Western version of the game, as the boss's Japanese name is Wart. It's possible that the Skullwoods dungeon boss Mothula is based on the kaiju Mothra. Mothula is also the only boss that can be hurt by the game's catchable bees. In the Ice Palace, the player can come across Pentagores. Pentagores may be based on the mythical Kappa of Japanese folklore, as they have some key similarities. They have bald heads surrounded by tufts of hair, beaks lined with teeth, and an amphibious nature. The name of the Misery Meyer boss, Vitreus, likely comes from Vitreus Humor. Vitreus Humor is a clear gel found inside the eyeballs of vertebrates. Inside Turtle Rock, the player can obtain the Mirror Shield. The Mirror Shield may be a reference to the Kid Icarus series, where Pit uses a Mirror Shield to defend against Medusa's eye beams. The mirror shield in both games is likely a reference to Greek mythology. The hero Perseus used a polished shield to reflect the image of Medusa, so he could avoid looking at her and turning to stone. Chain Chomps also appear as an enemy in Turtle Rock. Chain Chomps are known as Mario enemies, but like the Fire Bars, they were originally planned to appear in the original The Legend of Zelda. Takashi Tezuka, who has worked on both Zelda and Mario, decided to put it in A Link to the Past as a joke. Also in A Link to the Past, there is a secret room that is inaccessible via normal means. However, it can be accessed without the aid of a cheat device. This room is known as the Top Secret Room, or the Chris Houlihan Room. It serves as an error handler or failsafe if the player drops into a hole and the game doesn't have a valid destination for them. Inside, there are 45 blue rupees and a telepathy tile which states, My name is Chris Houlihan. This is my top secret room. Keep it between us, okay? This room was created as the prize for a Nintendo Power contest where a randomly selected entrant would receive a cameo in a Zelda game. To enter, readers had to submit a picture of the elusive Warmech boss from Final Fantasy. While the room still exists in the Game Boy Advance port, the glitches used to access it were removed. 
Cheating yourself into the room will also reveal that the telepathy tile has been removed from the wall. In the Game Boy Advance version of the game, there's an exclusive dungeon called the Palace of the Four Sword. Almost every Octo Balloon in A Link to the Past is red. The only exception to this is a single orange Octo Balloon within the Palace of the Four Sword. Also exclusive to the Game Boy Advance version is the Riddle Quest. The player can obtain three statues from the Riddle Quest, a Cucko, Link, and Princess Zelda. If the player sprinkles magic powder on the statues, they will change in different ways. At first, they will all sparkle. If the player sprinkles some more on the Kako statue, it will change color and either appear to be an ordinary Kako or resemble the Dark World Kako. If the player does the same to Link's statue, it will change to the same colors as Link or into a bunny Link. And if the same is done to the Zelda statue, it'll either get the real Zelda colors or turn into an older version of Zelda. Now we've reached the first portable entry in the Zelda series, The Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening. Much like the original Zelda on NES, the secrets in this game start right on the file select screen. If the player enters their name as Zelda, a salsa remix of the main Zelda theme will play. This song is played in all versions in various ways. In the French version of Link's Awakening DX, this song is played by entering the name Lolo. Entering the name Lolo in the original French and Canadian Game Boy versions plays a completely different song, however. By entering the name Moise in the German version of the game, it'll play a techno track. This is a reference to Claude Moyes, who was editor-in-chief of Club Nintendo magazine and part of Nintendo of Europe's localization department. Entering Moyes in the DX version of Link's Awakening will play a remix of Totaka's song. This version of the song can also be heard in the Japanese version of the game by entering the name Totakeke. When Link wakes up, one of the first things the player can do is speak with Taran. Taran heavily resembles Mario. Both have similar hair, a large nose, mustache, red shirt, and love mushrooms. Taran also transforms into a raccoon later in the game. This is a power Mario uses in multiple games. If the player goes outside and explores Mabe Village, one of the characters they can find is Madame Meow Meow. Madame owns a Bow Wow, which is an obvious reference to Mario's chain shop enemies. There's also Grandma Ulrira, who would often say Yahoo in the original game. This was replaced with Hello and Yippee in the 3DS port of Link's Awakening. This was likely done to remove any perceived association with the web portal and search company Yahoo. Funnily enough, Link's Awakening was released in America five whole months before Yahoo Inc. was even founded. And lastly for today, a plush toy of Yoshi appears in Mabe Village. The Yoshi doll can be found as a prize in the trendy game shop. Hello and welcome to the first episode of Your Questions Answered, the show where we investigate your burning questions about video games. Link from The Legend of Zelda is one of the most recognizable video game characters ever created. In 2001, the Guinness Book of World Records even held a poll on its website where Link clinched the second spot for the top video game characters of all time. But have you ever wondered why Link looks the way he does with his pointy ears and iconic green clothes? Well, if so, it's your lucky day because that is the question we'll be investigating in today's episode. More specifically, why does Link look like an elf? There's several ways to approach this question. First, we'll look at the in-universe explanation, then we'll look for any official comments from the series developers. 
In The Legend of Zelda, there are many different tribes and species throughout various eras. Since The Legend of Zelda games have an official timeline, we can actually track the history of these groups. It's important to note that the various links across different games are usually different incarnations of the hero, not counting a few direct sequels. Despite the differences within the timeline, Link is always Hylian. According to the Hyrule Encyclopedia, which has only been released in Japan, the Hylians are said to closely resemble the gods. Furthermore, the reason Hylians have long ears is so that they can hear the gods. Link wears green clothes because the original Link in the timeline, the Link from Skyward Sword, received green clothes when he graduated from Night Academy. If he had graduated a year earlier, the legendary hero would have been wearing yellow instead of green as the colors change from year to year. And Link's hat was inspired by the escapades of Link and Elzo during the events of the Minish Cap, since Elzo was turned into a green bird-like cap by Vadi. In Zelda's lore, the adventures of Link became legend and are passed down from generation to generation. In the newest Zelda at the time of this recording, Link wears blue. This is because the developers wanted to signal that Breath of the Wild wasn't a traditional Zelda and wanted to shake things up. Despite this, the tunic of the Wild, an unlockable armor set in the game, follows Link's traditional color, green. Now that we've covered the in-universe explanation for Link's appearance, let's look for quotes by the developers. In an interview with Game Cult from 2003, Miyamoto revealed that the original inspiration behind Link was none other than Disney's Peter Pan. Takashi Tezuka drew inspiration from the character to make sure that Link's sprite would be recognizable. Since the Famicom had limited graphical capabilities, they wanted to ensure that Link's sprite was still distinguishable from his weapons. To make him more readable, Tezuka thought that Link should have a long hat and pointy ears. Because Link was a fairy tale inspired character, they decided to continue with the direction of elves, and his association between elves and fairy tales dates back to medieval Europe. During this time, elves entered the folklore of several cultures, including Anglo-Saxon England, Scandinavia, and groups around modern-day Germany. Link's pointy ears and green clothes made their debut on the original Famicom Disk System game, released on February 21st, 1986. Link's appearance isn't his only similarity with Peter Pan, however. According to the Hyrule Encyclopedia, Child Link from Ocarina of Time was 7 years old, whereas other incarnations of Link have generally ranged from 12 to 17 years old. While this may change for later games, Link has generally stayed pretty young. Much like Peter Pan, Link just hasn't grown up. In Ocarina of Time, the Kokiri children Link grew up with do not age due to protection from the Great Deku Tree. This is similar to the Lost Boys in Peter Pan who also don't age. The inspiration behind this forever young concept actually has some tragic roots. The author of Peter Pan, J.M. Barry's brother, died while ice skating shortly before his 14th birthday. Barry was so overwhelmed by his mother's grief and the loss of his brother that Barry tried to imitate his brother so that he could bring him back to life, so to speak. Similar to Peter Pan, Link has also fought his own shadow. Link's shadow, or Dark Link, first appeared in the series with The Legend of Zelda 2, Link's Adventure, but has since been featured in over half a dozen Zelda titles. Dark Link generally has the same abilities and equipment as normal Link and proves to be a worthy foe. One last similarity worth mentioning are the fairies. In Peter Pan, Tinkerbell serves as Peter's aide, while Link has also received help from various fairies, such as Navi from Ocarina of Time and Tattle from Majora's Mask. Like the original Tinkerbell from the story, the fairies in Zelda make a sound similar to a tinkering bell, when they try to get Link's attention. During an interview while Ocarina of Time was still in development with the Fanny Maga 64, Shigeru Miyamoto suggested that Navi had feelings for Link and was jealous of Zelda. This is similar to Tinkerbell and Wendy's relationship and provides for another connection between the Zelda series and Peter Pan.
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.